Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Early voting in the New York City primaries began last Sunday and ends this uh, Sunday. And, and primary day is this coming Tuesday. There are 13 candidates for mayor in the Democratic primary, although only eight are viewed as genuinely competitive. And there are hundreds of candidates running for city council, 10 Democrats running for controller, dozens running for the five borough presidencies, and eight for Manhattan district attorney. There are a dozen candidates for just one city council district in Upper Manhattan. And there's also a Republican primary. Joining us today to discuss the primaries and regional politics is one of our regular contributors to this show, journalist Bob Henley. He reports for Public Radio, Salon, The Chief Leader, and other news organizations. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to our show. Hi, Bob. I'm looking forward to Election Day because I'm so tired of watching all of the candidates' ads on TV, those same ads over and over again. And I wonder where all the money to pay for those ads is coming from. Well, I think we had the 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 best of uh, worst case scenarios here. So what we're seeing here is we have a robust public campaign financing system put up by the campaign finance board as a consequence of voter support over the years for the idea of having uh, encouraging grassroots giving and then matching that kind of effort. And then also remember, this is the first time since the betrayal by the Supreme Court of the Public Trust in 2010 with Citizens United, where we're seeing the PACs play a role. So you're seeing hedge fund Citadel CEO Ken Griffin and fund manager Daniel Loeb, um, you know, all having a chance to throw some money around and not leave any fingerprints. So we're awash in both candidates and cash. Mm. Will democracy survive? One super PAC, New York for Ray, raised $6 million for Ray McGuire. Does that suggest that Wall Street is interested in, in the outcome of the mayor's race? Well, that's probably a confluence of people that know uh, Mr. McGuire and have confidence in his ability to take the city in another direction after what has been a pretty traumatic series of months. Uh, but no doubt people figure uh, that this is a way of uh, getting in early and deep to have an impact on what the city does next in terms of public policy and land use. I mean, we saw that, and this really transcends ideology. So you have a, a current occupant of Gracie Mansion, Mayor de Blasio, who you know has represented himself and ran as a progressive. But throughout his tenure, there was this other persona, uh, you know, the kind of you know, black hat Bill de Blasio, where he was known to curry favor with real estate developers. And oh, look at that. Oh, aha, this was rezoned by accident. Oh, we shouldn't let that happen. I'm talking about Rivington, which was this um, healthcare place, a long-term facility um, uh, in Manhattan um, that just somehow got transferred and was fell into private hands. And some mm -hmm. of the people, some of those hands were some of the same hands that provided cash to uh, Mayor de Blasio. And no one's really clear on the details and prosecutors wrote some letters to the file and nothing happened. And that's kind of how New York City has been rolling my entire reporting life. Um, the entrance of the super PACs, though, certainly uh, mean that there's more opportunity and there's less fingerprints left behind. Well, Michael Donovan donated $6.8 million to New Start New York City, a super PAC that supports his son, Sean, for mayor. 
buying public office works for Michael Bloomberg, but what about when it's your father who's trying to buy it for you? Well, I mean, and that's a good point, because I think that there is a kind of shock factor here. We do remember that even with all these numbers where, you know, we had um, uh, Mayor Bloomberg spend in excess of $100 million with some obscene number uh, per vote. And it almost seemed, uh, covering those elections, that the amount of money actually suffocated political engagement, that people just grew nauseous of it. And so really, uh, up until um, AOC reactivated politics by defeating Crowley, um, there was just this really deteriorated level of engagement. It's important to remember in 2013, uh, when there was not a um, there was not an incumbent standing. And of course, that was the end of the Bloomberg era, the 12 years. Um, and in before that he became primary, a Democrat. Right. Well, you had um, <laughs> you had Bill de Blasio and, and, a, and a crowded field, but not as not the crowd scene we have now. But even in that election, only 20 percent of registered Democrats turned out. So that meant that Bill de Blasio, um, who I guess at that point was public advocate, uh, didn't really have a mandate. Uh, he had a fraction of a fraction that turned out. And then in the general election, when I think he stood up against Loda, um, who had been MTA and was Republican, it dropped to 13%. So we've had a period of time, with the exception of some of the energy that's happened around the progressives in the state legislature, and again, with the leadership of AOC, people getting re-engaged in politics. But generally, the long trend has been disengagement by the voters and the more money, uh, more and more money being spent to engage fewer and fewer voters. Not quite to the, uh, the level of Camden, where only 2,500 people can pick a mayor. That's third world status. We're really proud of that in New Jersey. But that it's very anemic engagement. So it's really an open question. To what degree in this race will we see some of that same energy that animated the politics around the, 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 the Trump uh, election that President Biden prevailed in? Well, one of the, uh, the liberals, Maya Wiley, faced some backlash from the New York Post and others for dark money from super PACs funded by billionaires like George Soros. Do you think that this rather common phenomenon has compromised her progressive credentials? I, I think that it is so ubiquitous that to try to hang um, this question of campaign contributions on someone, I, I think it's at this point more critical voters to drill down and look at the nature of the accomplishments, particularly if someone has had a public record. And Samaya Wiley was uh, a top legal advisor to Mayor de Blasio. Um, there were projects that she had wanted to take on, Wi-Fi access, things where she had access to power on behalf of the city and voters would, I think, be better suited evaluating, did she deliver? Um, and then also, um, you know, looking at the nature of the support they have too. So, you know, while you have this super PAC baggage that I, a number of them have at this point, it's important to see, well, what other unions are supporting? So Maya Wiley has a support of 1199, which has been known as a progressive healthcare union that's uplifted, um, you know, people of color in an industry that has just been through, well, the most disastrous time in recent American history in terms of COVID. So none of this is black and white. 
Polls early this week showed Eric Adams leading with Catherine Garcia running second. But haven't those polls been tightening in recent days? Well, they're kind of all over the place. I mean, it does generally shake out that what's been happening. Um, and again, this depends on who the pollsters identified as likely voters. Um, and it does seem that there is this first tier situation with uh, uh, with Garcia, uh, Wiley, Yang and Adams. And then Stringer is a little bit of a wild card. Uh, but this is where what's really important here in a situation we have some initial sense that the early voting has not been people have not been beating down the local polling places door. I think I saw some like under one percent. So so far, it's off to a kind of anemic start. And so what that does, if you do have a, a, a kind of lackluster turnout, it puts in um, a kind of uh, additional premium on endorsements from unions or any organization that has the ability to galvanize um, action by thousands of people. So in essence, it gives you an amplified vote. And so that's why in terms of uh, what you have in terms of, and it might be interesting now to go over what kind, how have the unions come down in this race? Because it tells you a lot about in s- some of the good news that actually New York City is evolving, despite all the stuff about campaign finance and the rest, there's some signs that um, there is some movement in terms of um, uh, coalition building that's multiracial. I will tell you that I was surprised to see uh, the Uniform Fire Officers Association, which I covered the chief, endorse Eric Adams. Um, that organization, uh, of course, it's the, the fire department has been the agency that's probably the uniform services had the hardest time with integration. It's been a struggle. Uh, a lot of that was documented by my colleague, Ginger Otis, in a great book about the Vulcans. Um, and so one of the things that is happening is you're seeing this kind of cross-racial um, blue-collar coalition uh, uh, come around Eric Adams. And that said, Eric has a whole bunch of issues, like he likes to go to Creepistan or whatever stand there is that's offering a junket. Um, there's a great piece by David Freelander that I re- uh, recommend in New York that goes through the people around Eric Adams. Uh, it's also instruction to take a look at uh, Catherine Garcia's support, right? I mean, but wait, wait, let's, long- let's stick with Eric Adams for sure. a moment. A sure. Maris poll suggested that more conservative Democrats perform, prefer Eric Adams. So um, how does that work with the unions? Well, the unions, all you have to do is just have followed the way that such a big chunk of the American labor movement going back to Ronald Reagan. Right. So the Democrats at the national level, the, the you know, the six figure business agents and vice presidents and presidents uh, would tell folks to vote for Democrats and uh, voters, uh, you know, households. Uh, we call them like the Luck Valenza, you know, kind of um blue dog Democrats, they went with Reagan, hence the term Reagan Democrats. That really got amplified and even got um, exacerbated along racial lines with Donald Trump. Um, and But here in the city, I mean, I think we have to take a look at, when you talk about any of this stuff, you have to get it back. Uh, in order to understand the personality, you have to understand the landscape they're operating in, because that's the one thing they all share. And the reality is that New York City is in a very different place in terms of the concerns of small business and homeowners and renters and people just trying to get by because the circumstances of the city in a very granular way have changed. And so the politics 
are going to change. So prior to this, you know, we had a march of a decline in homicides for when I started as a reporter um, decades ago, 2,100 homicides a year, a very difficult place to be. And we saw those decline at the, even as we brought down stop and frisk, we saw murders decline to under 400. And a lot of that progress has been lost in the last, you know, 13 or 14 months. And so we now have, yes, we have this very strong contingent of Black Lives Matter. Uh, we've been through this horrible journey with stop and frisk where 800,000 people of color were, um, uh, were stopped and frisked. And at one point, Bloomberg paid out a billion dollars for bad police behavior over his 12 years. And yet that said, there is this, this concern about basic public safety moving around in the subway. And so will people split the difference? In that sense, Eric Adams represents this interesting, you know, people listen to this air, know that Eric Adams as a police captain with a hundred blacks in law enforcement who care, was one of the leading voices back in the day around the issue of stop and frisk. And he's been endorsed by major figures in that movement. At the same time, and this is what makes him so uniquely a New York character, he has tacked to the right and there is video of him showing you how you can stop and frisk or deal with uh, surveilling your own children to deal with contraband. So, yes, he and, and the, he has cut a figure that morphs to the center. Uh, is that Plato or is that good politics? I don't know. We'll have to see how he governs if he wins. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And my guest today is one of our regular contributors to this show, Robert Henley, a, uh, who, who has a, a whole bunch of different news outlets, which we will <laughs> try to get to. Uh, but there's just so much to talk about here. Um, Andrew Yang was once considered the front runner. And um, what happened? Uh, I, I guess he was a front runner because he had a national presence, uh, but um, he just seems to uh, have have dropped like a, a stone. And uh, Scott Stringer, who uh, got a lot of support from progressive groups, um, he's also uh, been losing support, uh, perhaps hurt by the claims of sexual misconduct. Well, I would say that, you know, an observation about that initial uh, Yang boom that happened, I think uh, John Samerson, international president of the TWU, um, had an interesting observation. He thought it was due to the fact that Democrats right now have, for bookends in terms of incumbent models, right, Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio. And so uh, Mr. Samuelson's logical conclusion is, yeah, are people up, particularly if they're younger, up for someone who looks refreshing and different and can extemporaneously explain how the economy is unfair? Sure. And I think what happened, though, is that there were a number of instances where you had Bradley Tusk, who's been an operator during the, uh, the uh, Bloomberg administration, has been someone that's identified with Uber and, and various kinds of 21st century's ways we make money despite working people's circumstance. Aren't they smart? You know, that crew, smarter than everyone else in the room. I think when I saw Mr. Uh, Tusk getting features about how he was supporting uh, Andrew Yang, Andrew Yang had a problem. Like when you have bigger headlines around someone that's supposed to be in the back room making things happen, mm -hmm. like 
even today's fixers are narcissists, right? I mean, the, the people that really were fixers back in the day, their names you really don't know. I'm suspicious. And so I think also that uh, Andrew Yang had some things happen. It came out that he hadn't been very much engaged in municipal elections. There was a period of time mm-hmm. where he wasn't around necessarily in the front lines, living in a neighborhood during the pandemic. Uh, he had that thing in the beginning where he blamed the teachers unions for kids not having, you know, these are kind of um, rookie mistakes. Right. And so, but, but that said, he has been speaking to this this notion that he started at 2020 and has you know this idea of universal basic income, which actually goes back to Martin Luther King, is still something that you know resonates with people. And so, and in ranked voting, we have to say it's really hard for us as much as we think we've seen everything that's ever happened. This is new. We really don't know what the impact is going to be um, of this ranked voting in the mix of how it all plays out. Is it possible that with ranked voting, uh, the person who gets the most votes still might not win? Well, it's it is possible. That I mean, it gets the person the the most first first choice votes because where you're really choosing uh, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and uh, it's ranked proportionally. But somebody who's second or third who gets more votes than the the uh, the the leading vote getter might very well want to be the winner. No, I think the general, uh, and I've read up pretty much on this, the consensus is that this is a far more democratic and engaging process. And the thing I'll have to say about it is that it requires people to be engaged and study the entire field. And that is different. And so I've seen some creative thinking. Somebody said to me, um, that it's very much like coming up with your um, the the dream team, right? You imagine like, well, and then you start thinking, well, what kind of synergies are involved here? And so we have um, some cre- uh, creative um, coalition building that's going on. Um, I, I, I think uh, net net, it's a positive because it's going to re- require people to, if they want to be informed, to press themselves to learn about all the candidates, because all of them play some role in how this is going to resolve. Well, they're all running ads that cite endorsements. So how much do they matter? For example, Sean Donovan doesn't seem to have been helped by all the references to the Obamas in his ad. And I wonder whether Catherine Garcia has been helped by the endorsements of the New York Times and the Daily News. Well, this is where it gets back to what I was saying before, that in an election where the turnout is anemic, the the organizations and endorsements matter uh, primarily just for a tactical standpoint and get out the vote. And so, you know, if someone said to me, you have an option of an endorsement from Cranes or, you know, um, something like, you know, Garcia is endorsed by, which is something that doesn't get much attention, but she's endorsed by the sanitation unions uh, who she supervised. And so in, in a period of time where one of the emerging issues coming out of the pandemic is the tension between management and workers um, and the question of how are essential workers treated, the fact that the sanitation union, which doesn't look like Ms. Garcia, you hear me? So that's a bunch of guys hmm. that they figure that she's somebody that they would work for. 
that's another piece of evolution here. Just like I see the fire officers overwhelmingly white endorse Eric Adams, uh, or for that matter, uh, the UFA, United uh, Uniform Fire Officer, uh, uh, Fire uh, Fighters Association, Andy Ansborough's group, he's president of, endorsing Andrew Yang. So, I mean, while I know that there's a lot of bad news in our politics, there's some sign here that we're evolving, and in a good way. Hundreds of candidates have lined up for the 51 seats on the city council that are up for grabs. 32 of them, almost two-thirds, are empty because incumbents are leaving. For example, city council speaker Corey Johnson is leaving. He's now running for controller. Uh, could progressives make serious gains on the council as a result? Well, well, first of all, not to be to quibble, but because uh, I, I want people, don't want people to be alarmed. The seats are not empty. There are people with pulses holding them down, yeah. um, and they're all looking for the next job. And and the people that are the lame ducks, if you want to say, um, they play an important role because they're all trying to figure out their next gig, and their staffs depending on their circumstance. So that's that's one of the things like lava that operates underneath the surface here. Um, I guess um, there is an opportunity. We, we are seeing um, a level of coordination between uh, progressive forces um, and AFC's endorsement of um, Amaya Wiley, uh, Jumani Williams. There's a certain, uh, and his support is public advocate. There is, um, uh, you, can, you can think like, you could go in, for instance, I'd imagine in most places and vote a, uh, a ticket almost that reflects those values. Um, and so that's a tremendous feat of organization. Whatever you think about the viewpoints these folks have, the fact that they've been able to create viable candidacies throughout the city uh, marks a turning point. I think it's also important to pull back a bit and look at some of, you know, people don't think that elections make a difference, but uh, we talked about this last time, but the New York State Senate, once they got rid of that right-wing Democratic cabal that was, you know, playing footsie with Cuomo and playing footsie with the Republicans. Consider that in the last session, uh, with a kind of hobbled Governor Cuomo on the sidelines, having fireworks and, you know, playing with the construction trucks, but really pretty much sidelined in terms of his political effectiveness, the progressives were able to do two things I never thought would happen in a Wall Street-friendly Albany, which was raise taxes on the super wealthy, uh, which they did, and turn around and give $2.1 billion to undocumented workers displaced by the pandemic, Leonard. Mm. This is in California. That was a very big deal. And that shows you the effectiveness of this kind of coordinated organizing effort. Now, Ruben Diaz Sr. of the Bronx is stepping down. He provoked controversy in 2019 when he said that the city council was, quote, controlled by the homosexual community. With all of the turnover in the city council, could that kind of language be a thing of the past, even if it oh, isn't think, in national I politics? I, I think, I mean, I think that um, if you look at what's been happening, uh, I think in general, um, the the center on this issue has moved. And it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and that's another example, like I say, of the social progress. Yes, there's there's a lot of reactionary, um, you know, what we're seeing, the June 6th insurrection and the rest at the national level. Reactionary forces are really resistant to deal with the reality of this increasing 
um, majority minority country that they feel alienated from. But the thing you just cite here about the general evolution about people's uh, attitudes uh, about gender um, is, is a significant progress. What about gun control? Have any of them uh, made strong, taken strong positions on that? Well, the because New York State is the way it is, and generally with inside New York City, it's so democratic. Um, it doesn't. I don't think that gets much much traction. I mean, where that kind of thing surfaces is when you're um, in the intramural Republican contest. You might have, you know, who's going to be more like Trump, and then hence uh, back those traditionally conservative issues. But that's I don't I don't see that as something that really has. Um, it's a focal point. I mean, I will say certainly the issue that is defining is the everything around the question of defunding the police, which is a loaded phrase. So that is something that, you know, the views about the police, um, how you want to see them going forward, how much money should they be getting? I mean, that's another thing. Um, and this is going to be a city um, and and we're not really fully appreciating it right now because we're in that kind of Joe Biden multi-billion dollar high still, right? Like we got the American recovery plan and we're feeling pretty good. Well, you look at those out years a bit and there's going to choices are going to have to be made. And so it's going to come down to, are we going to accept, for instance, like we did for years, $800 million in NYPD overtime, right? I mean, that it's down 400 to 400 million because of the closures and, and the, uh, COVID protocols and all that. But year after year, I sat through so many hearings where it was like Groundhog Day, multi-million dollar Groundhog Day, where the commissioner would come in and sit across from the budget people and they'd say, well, the overtime is very high. Well, we, your honor, we plan on bringing it down this year. And the people would suspend belief and forget what they heard the other five years and give them a pass. And then it would blow up again. So those are the, uh, those are the kinds of things. That, the other issue here is the redefining of what we mean by community policing in terms of what I would say, community wellness. And that seems to be another thing that's evolving here. Um, you're seeing just a couple of weeks ago, um, a very hopeful project where in two precincts up in uh, Northern Manhattan, when you call 911 for an emotionally disturbed situation where someone's uh, you know, having uh, an incident and they're not violent, it's not gonna be a police response. Okay, it's going to be a civilian um, FDNY EMT and mental health response. So those are the kinds of things. Those are going to be the debates that are going to frame the next mayoralty. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. on today's show is journalist Bob Henley, who reports for Public Radio, Salon, The Chief Leader, and other news organizations, and is a regular contributor to this program. Uh, the New York City Board of Elections has a history of nepotism and mistakes. Could the change to rank choice voting be hampered by corruption and incompetence in the system, or does it uh, eliminate some of it? 
Well, that's a kind of uh, loaded question. <laughs> Stop beating well, your wife. Do you want me to ask you only easy ones, Bob? No, no, no. I'm just saying I, I do think that the form of the question needs to be addressed, too. So uh, I would say the question of competency is and the ability to, uh, to do something that is um, multidimensional like this, it's a significant challenge. And I'd, even without... Um, impugning the, the, the people that are doing it. Um, but that said, part of the, uh, the baggage that we carry generation after generation is the way that we have structured the election machinery. And we have put firmly in the hands of the two-party system, which has, you know, you know, in many ways is about self-serving their own interest, right? In charge of uh, the self-determination, quote-unquote, that we exercise when we vote. And that is going to be problematic. Um, and it does, the fact that you do have people that are sitting on these boards that are on, in these, uh, uh, have, this, have this power, that it's a result that they have served in some feudal way a series of political leaders who are behind the scenes that are bosses, yeah, that's a problem. And so... What happens is anytime anything goes awry that may not have associated with it any kind of corruption, that baggage looms large. Now, Democratic voters, at least according to statistics, outnumber Republicans six to one. Right. But before Bill de Blasio, New York City had two Republican mayors in office for a total of 20 years, Michael Bloomberg and Rudolph Giuliani. Are there any Republican leaders of comparable stature in the city now? Because when we talk about this election, we're really pretty much only talking about the Democratic candidates. Right. And you do have uh, Matteo, who's running. He is a Republican in the primary. It's important to note. Um, he's the president of New York State Federation of Taxi Drivers. Right. So. And he's been a, a figure in, in New York City politics. And then, of course, Curtis Lewa, a former WNYC broadcaster. Yeah, uh, we, founder uh, of the Guardian he Angels. followed me. Ah. He followed me on the air. Uh, it was always an uncomfortable transition. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, he's so, running for uh, mayor. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I think the Republican Party itself uh, is in a bit of a, uh, you know, an ongoing kind of implosion. And so um, the, the real action is within the Democratic Party, where you're seeing, you know, this uh, very dynamic organization that's that's uh, that's had a big role here in the direction of the country. I mean, the what AOC has started and what has now been followed on in the state Senate by figures like Jessica Ramos and, um, and, and the people that she's working with, uh, that is a very new moment in New York state politics. And it's funny because when you go back a long, long time ago, back last time socialists had any kind of traction, the reaction to the state was to remove the socialists from the state legislature. So uh, that's where the whole of the program, but so this is a very, and, and also you have to consider that at the same time that this foment is happening with the democratic party, there is the same kind of dynamic movement of change, multiracial um, uh, and driven by women happening in unions. So it's not just happening in the sphere of politics. So it's a very exciting time. The Brennan Center at NYU describes New York City as having 
a reputation for pay-to-play lawmaking and for corruption. Could all the turnover that we're seeing with our mayor, city council control, and other positions reduce the influence of money, or does it provide more opportunity for money to flow in? Well, this is one of those things that you could debate, like in a high school debating thing, you could take both Mm -hmm. sides of it. When you have... um, the logic, I'll do both sides of the argument. There is the opposite side. So there's one school of thought that you can support that by limiting terms, you make it so that you won't have a professional class of elective officer. And then you have some kind of dynamic and like water chemistry, right? It's, it's better water to drink the more oxygen and bubbles you got, right? I mean, we know that. Um, on the other hand, you can make an argument that when you have term limits, the only folks sticking around would be the unelected bosses and the lobbyists and the staffers. And so they become, and I've seen that happen, kind of their own permanent government that are equally susceptible to corruption. Another big race in the city is uh, for Manhattan district attorney. Could the outcome affect any of the investigations into Donald Trump and his family and or his businesses? Well, I, I, I think that, um, I, I, I don't think so. Uh, but on the other hand, though, um, I think um, the outgoing uh, Mr. Vance um, had a, in this case, because he had had such a bad uh, prior batting record, right? So we know that the Times has reported, WNYC, our colleagues there have done a good job reporting this. There was an opportunity where the Trump, um, um, kids were involved with that hotel in lower Manhattan. There has been, you know, uh, significant reporting that they had made misrepresentations that should have gotten them into trouble and that a, uh, a bloom, uh, a, 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 a Trump lawyer representing them went to see Mr. Vance. And then there was a campaign contribution and then that problem went away. Um, that has been something that, you know, will be up there, um, in Mr. Vance's obituary. So I, I think that probably the intensity and passion about wanting to have a bigger headline to Trump Trump, um, it may fade a bit because uh, it's very much about uh, Mr. Vance's legacy here. I mean, uh, to a large degree, the failure of the federal government to hold Trump accountable and the ongoing nature of the insurrection, the way that we've not been able, the way we let them do what they did and people were able to mill around and go back home and put their feet up, uh, really left it to uh, Cy Vance to uh, hold Trump accountable for this period of lawlessness. So um, it may not be as important to whoever his successor is as it is to Mr. Vance. The the TV ads for one of the candidates for district attorney, Tali Farhadi and Weinstein, suggests that she is a progressive, but she interviewed for a federal judgeship in the early months of the Trump administration. If she was conservative enough to be considered by Trump, how can she be running in, in the Democratic primary for Manhattan DA? And if she wins, uh, oversee investigations of Trump? Well, that's, that's looping a few things that I don't have the granular reporting to support. Mm-hmm. So I don't know those things to be true. But I will say that when you're in a situation where it's a limited pool of people that are going to be voting and you have a crowded field 
and you have a tremendous amount of money at stake, um, there is going to be all kinds of forces at work that are going to be antithetical to the to the public interest. And so, um, and I think also that um, this change in sentiment publicly that's happened, um, you know, let's see whether or not it backs up accountability in law enforcement. But no, I, I think that whenever you get into these people, that these people that have had these great resumes um, and been in these positions where they've had to make decisions and uh, you have this revolving door thing where they had a period of time where they were in public service and then they go to a law firm, every stop they pick up some baggage. And she uh, gave over $8 million to her own campaign. I didn't know the DA's office was worth that much. Her husband is a hedge fund manager and ProPublica reports that the two of them paid virtually no federal income taxes. <laughs> that might taint any investigation of Wall Street malfeasance. Well, certainly, she also she also right. skipped voting for years, just like Andrew Yang he voted for years in local elections. I mean, certainly, uh, and this the, the one of the central questions at at, uh, at twenty twenty one is the is this question of economic inequality, which has accelerated mm-hmm. under both Democrat and Republican administrations. It accelerated under President Obama. It took off at an even greater rate under uh, Trump. And we even see that even in a progressive place like New York State, New York State is like we said in this program, uh, going back to the early part of the 20th century, we had a stock transfer tax. It was a nickel and $100, Leonard. In the Mm. 1980s, we decided that we were going to let Wall Street keep it because we thought that might move. And we lost tens of billions of dollars as we've closed hospitals and communities of color. So this question, I mean, do I think that that kind of large money should be a disqualifier to be in charge of a legal system that is still dealing with issues of systemic racism? Uh, Yeah, I would say, yeah, if you're a a multimillionaire, you got to wonder what's really at stake here. And and unless you give it all away in some grand gesture, uh, it is trouble. But the, the New York Times endorsed Alvin Bragg, a civil rights attorney uh, and a prosecutor from Manhattan DA. But he's been the subject of a number of attack ads on television, suggesting that he's gone been very soft on sexual predators. So, uh, who do you believe? Well, I don't. I think you have to do your due diligence, and I don't think. You, if you find an ad like that and you dig down and find out what was their response and what has been the person's, what's been the person's record. And then also look to see, is there, what kind of constructive examples in their past gives you a sense that they have the ability to deal with um, the multi-layered complicated questions that come with prosecuting the law um, in a time of great inequality. I mean, one of the things that, um, and this is tough because, you know, I, I just finished doing a story about um, an FDNY EMT that was uh, violently assaulted trying to help somebody. Uh, this is increasingly common where they're being assaulted. One young woman was bitten in the face in the EMT with eight years under the job. And it, what ends up happening is these individuals that do these violent assaults have all kinds of issues and they end up being released to the streets. 
This isn't, you know, this is this is granular reporting. And so the question is, what kind of accountability do we have when people act out and do violence to people that are trying to help them? I mean, there's a moral injury there to first responders that are don't they're not armed. They're coming to try to help someone. So how does a prosecutor sort through that? Those are the kinds of hypotheticals I'd like to pose to prosecutors, because those are the real world problems that are challenging New Yorkers today. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Bob Henley. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. Early voting began last Sunday. Is there any evidence of, of how many voters are turning out? Has there been a large turnout or has it kind of been trickling in? I saw a couple of dispatches that says it's like 1% so far. Um, then also... Um, That's I think almost like that, Georgia. Yeah, well, you have a situation where, as I said, you had that 20% with de Blasio in the primary where it was a throughway race, right? And... I, I don't think that um, that hurt him. I think having that kind of small, anemic turnout makes it very hard to govern and make hard choices because you don't come to the dance with an electorate that's got your back. Hmm. Well, New York City's guide for voters is 48 pages long. Uh, could that <laughs> new voting system and the sheer number of candidates deter some potential voters? Well, that's why I say to you the degree to which you would take the time, and that's why unions are going to have such an outsized influence here, I think, because they're going to provide um, an organizing base, right, to get people out to the polls. Uh, is there the potential that so much advertising and, and a saturation could demobilize voters? Sure, especially uh, I think there may also be a kind of post-Trump hangover in the sense that things were so dire um, that and the country rose to the occasion. We saw levels of engagement or participation we hadn't seen. And so I, I wonder if people, it's not going to fade a bit as people get back to the business of making their life work after this once in a century mass death event. New Jersey held the Democratic primary for governor in on June 8th. And I guess to no one's surprise, Phil Murphy won. Um, Who's unopposed? Yeah, the judge is sort of that. <laughs> how likely is he to, to win re-election in November against his Republican opponent, Jack uh, Chatterelli? Chitterelli. Chitterelli. Right. Um, it's, it's Murphy's election to lose. I think that um, he's also, to some degree, there's a bit of a curse hanging over Democrats because they haven't had, um, I think you have to go back to Brendan Byrne for a successful uh, governorship that was rewarded by re-election by the voters. Of course, we had that crazy uh, burlesque with Jim McGreevy, who resigned in the middle of his tenure and then held out long enough so that uh, Senator Cody could take over. Then there was Corzine, a one-term wonder. So the Democrats haven't gotten their sea legs um, and certainly Chitterelli is, is hurt by the fact that he still didn't get a majority of the Republican primary vote. Well, that, so, is that because he called Donald Trump a charlatan and acknowledged that Joe Biden won in 2020? Uh, because uh, I, yeah, well, you said a majority of Republican that, voters still believe that the election was fixed. 
Right. I would say that that has to do with the fact he tried to be on both sides of the issue. Uh, he did um, in 2016 take a, an aggressive stance um, as a never Trumper and then as Trump consolidated power. And then uh, in 2020, he tried to migrate back uh, into the fold of uh, the junta. And um, then the dynamics of the race changed. And so he tried to tack to the center. Um, and, you know, even now he's running a kind of what I call Trump 2.0, which is that, you know, Murphy's not from New Jersey. You know, like there's this whole nativist bent that he's got. And I don't know if that's going to track in a state that's increasingly made up of people from other parts of the world. I mean, that's one of the things that the Republicans are really having trouble dealing with. The um, vote by mail, the universal access to the ballot that happened out of the pandemic accelerated the demographic changes and implications of the fact that we are moving towards a majority minority country. And that's why they're fighting so hard all over to try to push back the clock, if you will, and restrict voting. They just don't like who's voting. Have there been calls for changes in voting procedures in New Jersey? Uh, New Jersey, the Democratic Party, where there's a, uh, an issue of uh, uh, a lack of responses and corruption of politics is with the party line. So it's not so much ballot access in the sense of voters getting to vote. It's the way that they insist on holding on to this feudal system where these shadowy figures who are bosses decide where your name is on a ballot yeah. as a candidate. So that's the way they put the finger on the scale. And that's increasingly getting more and more attention as progressives get even more and more experienced and figure out on how to advance the change agenda. The next gubernatorial election in New York will be in November 2022. Uh, Andrew Cuomo has announced plans to run for a fourth term. Uh, and uh, he, I'm sure he's been damaged, but do you think that uh, he still has a good chance of winning? I mean, your guess is, I guess, is as good as mine. Right, right, right. I, I mean, I would say, I mean, if you look at the, the thing that's, if you just step back for a second and pretend that you're an anthropologist from another planet, right? So here's a guy in the middle of this mass death event who is known to have closed hospitals in communities of color prior to the pandemic who proceeds to step up where there's a void because there's an insane dictator in the White House so there's no leadership at all. He steps up, he gives some kind of daily accounting where there's a noun verb, direct object, and charts. The, Amer the nation, which is uh, just adrift in chaotic anarchy and mass death events, with bodies being stacked in refrigerated trucks outside hospitals, looks to him as a beacon. Oh my goodness, there's a rational person, and he's friendly. And then all during that time, he is taking notes and gets millions of dollars to write a memoir uh, that his staff helps him with. Then he uses that same staff to suppress information about what's happening in the senior citizen facilities where people are dying, and he hides the numbers. Then when he's found out, he has no shame at all and then decides that he is going to, once we get to a 70% uh, level of vaccination, has fireworks and celebrates the great success of something that has left behind communities of color in a spectacular way, where depending on where you live, a minority of the a majority of the people have not been vaccinated. So that's that's Andrew's Como story. The fact that he's managed to package it differently shows you the lack of vigorousness that my colleagues have when they engage him. 
Well, but the infection rate in New York State is among the lowest in the in the nation, and it started off the highest. So, does he get? But any you're playing for this that? game when you go aggregate. See, when you say aggregate, that is not where community health is at. You have to drill down and look at the specific communities. I mean, the whole thing we went through with this hand wringing. Oh, when the you know, tens of thousands of people were dying, they were mostly people of color, and we were so sad, and we'll never forget this lesson. And here we are, we're forgetting this lesson because it's not convenient. We just had uh, President Biden's Department of Labor, Mr. Walsh, out of Boston, Mr. Pro-Labor, issue the uh, sign-off on the OSHA rules, which are going to restrict COVID workplace protections to healthcare settings and not include meat plants, not include places where capitalism packs people in to do their jobs and increase their, increases their risk of infection and death for themselves and their family. So that's today's Democratic Party, Leonard. Well, Bob, we have just a, a minute or Sorry. so left, but it's okay. <laughs> it's been really fun talking with you about all of this. But one final question. Why do you think it's so difficult for so many news organizations to move beyond the horse race uh, approach when they report on elections? Well, that has to do with the fact that they have they're so restricted because the people that sit on top of these organizations um, want so much money to just run them. So you have a situation where you pick the plates, WNYC, Gannett, whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. You have these enterprises where you have these people make these huge salaries. And then in order to make those huge salaries, how do they do that? How do they carry that freight? They compress what they're willing to pay at the bottom in terms of gathering news and information. I mean, you make a joke, I write all these different places. Well, what do you think that is? Mm -hmm. uh, do I like to work all the time? Not particularly. <laughs> but, you know, uh, if you are, when I started doing this um, at the Village Voice, I got a dollar a word, Leonard. That was in mm. our time. And now I do something for Salon. It's aggregated a million times in other places where I don't own the rights, I might get a nickel or maybe a penny. Well, we should point out that people can read you at all sorts of different places. On Twitter, at Stuck Nation. Right. Uh, they can go to stucknation.com. They can go to muckrack.com slash Bob Henley. Right. Uh, they can go to thechiefleader.com, to salon.com uh, slash writer slash Bob Henley. So um, if you want to uh, go into more detail on any of the things that we've been sure. discussing, I suggest that you check those places out. And Bob, thank you again. One so thing, much Leonard, for being point on of personal show. privilege. I have a book coming out next month, Stuck oh, Nation. Well, well, you haven't sent it to me, so I didn't know. I know. It's just getting put together. So I will. it's being brought up at Democracy at Work. Uh, people are familiar who listen to this air, Rick Wolf's program. Um, and I think it'll raise some of the issues we've been talking about. People will find some continuity. Well, I suspect we'll be discussing it the next time you're on the show. Excellent. <laughs> Bob Henley, thank you so much. But that does bring us to the end of our show. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview, uh, to Reggie Johnson, our live engineer, and to Leonard Lopate at Large's executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all the important work that he does throughout the week. 
Um, if you would like to hear more of our shows, you can access our archive of over 500 interviews at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you would like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support this station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online right now to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit hard by the pandemic. A lot of our longtime listeners have had to drop their support for the station, which is why we're asking anyone who is able to in this time of crisis to step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and London Lopate at large on the air. Remember, we are supported 100% by our listeners. We don't take ads or uh, foundation grants or anything else. So the way to do that is to call 212-209-2950 right now or go online to give to WBAI.org. And becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a particularly great way to support BAI without having to shell out a lot of money at one time. It allows us to plan for the future. You can become a BAI buddy or make a contribution at any amount, as I've said, by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. And my great thanks to everyone who's already supporting this station in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. I hope you can join us on Monday when political scientist Alexander Betts, the associate head of the Social Sciences Division at the University of Oxford, will discuss his new book, The Wealth of Refugees, How Displaced People Can Build Economies. Have a great weekend. Have a great holiday.